Uh, my name is Scott. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are a, going through an entire Bible uh, journey across 2012 together. Uh, every week we're doing readings together, and if you're interested in joining us, you'll see inside your program some information about how to join the journey. Uh, go to our website, download the reading plan, and just begin with this week's reading uh, to follow along with us, and you'll be up to date with what's going on around here. We um, are talking specifically over these few weeks about what does it mean to be the people of God. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today than what I normally do. I'm going to begin with my conclusion. So there's no question about where we're headed and what I'm going to be asking you to do. And this is this. I'm going to ask you in the first place, will you consider the evidence about God, about Jesus, about the call that he places on our lives And will you follow him with all your heart? I'm also going to be asking you, will you practice faithfulness to God? God has a plan for your life and a plan for this world. And as we are invited to do life with him, he invites us to do so according to his will and way. Will you be faithful to that? And then finally, will you be tenacious in personal holiness? And you go, say what? I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. But that's where we're headed. And if you're looking at those calls for decision, you may be thinking, that seems a little radical or maybe not exactly relevant to where I am today. So let's just talk a little bit about where we're coming from and what it is that uh, we're seeing through the lens that we've adopted in life. The lens that you look at life through is normally referred to as a worldview. Or if you think about uh, life as a story and what part your life plays in that story, maybe it's a meta narrative. What's the big story that your life is a part of? In 21st century American culture, the meta narrative or the basic cultural worldview goes something like this everything begins with evolution. And so there's kind of a randomness to all that there is doesn't have design and purpose. And out of that randomness comes human life through multiple evolutionary processes, which is to imply that there's no intent, there's no design, there's no purpose, and there is no innate value in life. All of those things are important things to be aware of. And after we come into being, then we are faced with what are we going to do with this life that we have And so we usually adopt some kind of mentality of I'm going to maximize life in whatever way I discern or determine life can be maximized. And so if I have determined that uh, I want to be hedonistic, I'm going to go for all the pleasure I can go after. I want to have a sense of power, then I will accomplish things and position myself in ways that I can have power. If I have kind of an altruistic bent, then how can I give back or how can I pay it forward? How can I make this world a better place than the one that I came into? Whatever maximizing life looks like for you, you get to define that. And then it all ends with death. And death is kind of a finality. There is nothing after death. It's the annihilation of the person, your personality, your essence no longer exists. Now, that is the typical 21st century American culture meta-narrative. Not surprisingly, what we're talking about here is a totally different storyline. And it goes something like this. It all begins with creation. 
We believe that there is a designer. We call him God. He has created all that there is, and he did so from nothing. And he created all that there is with purpose and intent, with design, including humanity, which he made in his own image, declaring innately that there is worth in the life of every single individual because they are in his image. So whether or not mom and dad want the child, whether or not society wants the child, God wants the child. And there's innate value and there is innate purpose. God says, I have a plan for every person that ever draws breath, that's ever conceived and brought into this world. And that plan is good. That plan is perfect. That plan is delightful. But as the narrative continues, there was a time where humanity rebelled against God. There was a fall. And Adam and Eve ate a forbidden fruit and sinfulness began to separate us from God and from his purposes and from his plan. But because God is full of mercy, full of grace, he then began to move in our midst in ways that would redeem us, buy us back from a fallen, condemned state so that we can have relationship with him and so that we can reengage the purposes that he has for us. And all of that culminates in a final chapter that uh, we would call restoration, where everything that has fallen, everything that has taken on a destructive nature is restored to original intent. Now, uh, for those of you that have been doing the Bible reading journey with us, we've already covered the creation part. We've already covered the fall part. And in fact, we are in the redemption part of the story. All the way until we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to be in the redemption part of the story. It's a huge part of the story, although restorative things are happening all along the way. Real quickly, where we are today. Uh, God began to enact his purpose to redeem people by making a covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham's descendants continued that covenant, that relationship with God for redemptive purposes. Abraham's descendants are known as Israel. These Israelites were brought out of captivity in Egypt across a wilderness wandering into a promised land. And this past week, we were just reading about how they were beginning to occupy that land. This week's readings that begin with Judges chapter 2 talks about what did life look like when they were setting up their livelihood in this new promised land. Central figures in this part of the story where Israel is setting up their lives in this promised land are judges. Judges are not judicial figures as we think about them today who sit and hear cases and make decisions about what is true or what is just. Rather, judges in those days were rulers over the people of Israel. After the time of Joshua, we read last week, up until the time of the kings, which is soon to come. That period of Israeli history is about 300 years in duration. Uh, It is a chaotic time, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit in the next few minutes. Uh, There are... A number of those judges listed in the reading that you'll be doing this week. Some of those judges we know a great deal about. 
And some of those judges we virtually know nothing about. And you'll find it interesting all along the way to see the stories that unfold around them. We uh, are going to be doing some reading in just a moment from Judges chapter 2. And so I encourage you to open a Bible to Judges chapter 2. And when you find that, hold the place and turn all the way to the, near the end of the New Testament to the book of Philippians. And we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. Judges 2, Philippians 3. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Now, what you will see as you're reading in Judges across the coming week is what I will just simply call a cycle of unfaithfulness. You will see a pattern of dealing with life that is repeated over and over and over. It's Groundhog Day over and over and over. You cannot believe they wake up and do the same thing all over again the next day. Ever been there? Know somebody that's been there. Are you there right now? How do you get out of Groundhog Day? That's what we're talking about today. What you find in this cycle of unfaithfulness is that, first of all, as God has brought them into the land and they are there to follow God and be faithful to God and, and accomplish the purposes of God, they then begin to abandon the Lord and they begin to wander away from Him. And so God, because He's a loving God, will do disciplinary things with them to try to draw them back. He will punish them. He will raise up foreign powers, foreign oppressors to give Israel a hard time so that they kind of have a wake-up call and begin to look back in God's direction. Uh, it usually works. After some period where they are being oppressed and they're in a lot of pain, they eventually cry out to God and God hears their cry for deliverance. And so he will raise up a deliverer. He will raise up a judge who will then operate in certain ways that kind of restores sanity for them. Now, here's that's the cycle. And this thing will happen over and over and over again throughout the whole reading of Judges. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 2 as just one example. And so if you will open your Bible to Judges 2, and I've listed some of the verses that will highlight what we're talking about. See if you can find the cycle as it's represented in Judges 2. Let's pick up the verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, get rid of the false gods, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. In other words, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to fight some of the battles that you're engaged in. But they shall become thorns in your sides, these enemies, these oppressors, thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnahiris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Just a few more verses. Stay with me. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals, that's false gods, and the Ashtaroth, false gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Two more verses. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them, and they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. A lot of reading. Still there? Hope so. See the pattern? See that cycle of unfaithfulness? Uh, where they begin to wander away. He begins to act in ways to stir up surrounding nations that begin to act in plundering, oppressive kinds of ways. People cry out. They turn back to God as he raises up a deliverer judge. Now, what we're talking about is how do we go about being people of God? If God pursues us to have a relationship with him. He pursues us so that we are in a covenant with him. And we begin this journey, we begin this life adventure with him. We still are in a context, last week we were talking about, that you would just say is of this world. How do you be God's people doing God's purposes in a world that doesn't live under that same narrative. How are you in the world but not of the world? The world system, the world values, the world narrative is what we simply refer to, and the, and the scripture simply refer to as worldliness. How do you contend with worldliness? I'm going to mention three things to you. The first is this. We must pass on faith to the next generation. It's our responsibility. Do you catch that in there? As long as Joshua and the elders of his day were alive, it was well with Israel and God. They could remember the acts of God in their midst. 
They uh, remained steadfast toward the Lord. They were faithful unto the Lord. But when Joshua and his generation died off, the passage says a generation came up who knew not the Lord. Now, how could they not know the Lord? With all the things that we have just read over these recent weeks that God had done for them, how can they reach a time where they don't know, know him and they aren't aware of these things? Well, a lot of years have passed, and in those years, parents were no longer passing the stories on, no longer passing on the connection with God that they and their ancestors had experienced. Now, this is not something that should have caught them off guard. We read a lot about this in the book of Deuteronomy some weeks ago. But in short, they were exhorted, you shall therefore... Lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you arise. In other words, through every experience of life, pass these things on to your children. Things about the Lord, who he is, what he's like, what he's doing, what he purposes to do in you. Mom and dad, you are the first line of passing on the faith to your children. The church pastors and church leaders are the second line. You're the first. And even as I say that, I realize I'm speaking into a culture that says, wait a minute, time out. Isn't it better... To allow children to just kind of grow up without your dogma and allow them to make choices along the way as they become more aware, as they become more informed, they choose whether they want to be religious or not. Isn't that the better, more fair way? Well, if you operate under that first worldview, that's exactly the way it ought to be. Because after all, they're making a decision how to maximize life. And if having religion or if Jesus or Christianity helps them to maximize life, then more power to them. Let them do it. But if the second meta narrative is, in fact, the true worldview, the true meta narrative, then, friend, it's not optional. It's crucial, it's essential. And it is unloving. To not pass it on to your children. It's cruel not to pass it on to your children if the second meta narrative is the correct one. Now, if you have bought into the second worldview and you go, but gosh, I just don't know that much about God. I don't know that much about the Bible. I don't know that much about theology and so on like that. Fine. You have capacity to learn. You learn about everything else in life. You learn about how to do your job. You learn about how to keep a home and a house. You you learn how to function in in a variety of social circles. Learn about the faith. Learn how to pass it on to your kids. Just stay one week ahead of them. That's what we do about a lot of other issues. They don't know that. We must pass the faith on to the next generation. How do we contend with worldliness? We must be born again. 
Now, friends, here's, here's kind of at the heart of the problem of these ancient Israelis. Why do they keep repeating these pitiful circles of sinfulness? It's because most of them, I dare say, did not have a covenant relationship with God by faith. They had a heritage of religion where they practiced a few religious rituals and they would constantly go wayward from those practices. But they did not have a connection with God like Abraham, like Moses, like Joshua. So when we get to the time of Jesus, he will get with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus one night. And he will say to this man who has kept all of the law, who is exemplary as a religious individual. And he says, Nicodemus, you're missing it. But unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Now, how do I know that this is the issue? The very last verse in the last chapter of the book of Judges tells us everyone's just doing what seems right in his own eyes. There's not a connection with God that has them engaged in his purposes and receiving his power and grace to live a faithful life. And so Jesus speaks into that whole system and he says, New birth, being born from above, just like you were born to your parents and you have a physical life, you must be born unto God like a heavenly father so that you have a spiritual life. You must. It's a necessity. And I contend that many in that day and in this don't have that kind of life. 1 John 3, 9 tells us no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, don't misunderstand that. That does not mean a born again, alive unto God person never sins. What it means is, is that they don't have a practice. It's not their habit to sin. They can occasionally stumble and commit a sin, but they don't leap into a lifestyle of sin and love it. Anybody that's leapt into a lifestyle of sin and loving it, the Bible says probably not born again. Which was the scenario in those ancient Hebrews. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, overcomes that whole worldliness problem. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. This is how they do it. Faith. A faith connection where God is speaking into your life and guiding your life and gracing your life and empowering your life and transforming your life, making you a new creation as the Apostle Paul would say it. Friends, we must pass on this faith to another generation. We must make sure that we have it to pass it on, that we've really, truly been born again. Now, I'll say finally in closing, we must become tenacious about personal holiness. A couple of definitions. Holiness is not about Morality. 
So I'm not saying get really tenacious about being really good. That's not what we're talking about. Holiness is about being separated from worldliness and connected to God and his purposes. That's what holiness is. Morality kind of comes along in its wake, but that's not what it's primarily about. And I'm contending that in order for us to successfully be God's people in this world, but not of this world, we must have a tenacity about personal holiness. Because there is a strong cultural current that constantly pulls our hearts, pulls our attention, pulls our affections away from God and the purposes of God. And so it takes a tenacity to continue to go across that current, to go upstream and be found faithful in the will and in the ways of God. And I want you to look at what that is like in Philippians chapter 2, and we're almost through. This is out of the life of the Apostle Paul. Does say 2, Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. Now, they don't come any more religious than the Apostle Paul before he met Jesus. He was a superstar religious person. And he finally meets Jesus one day as he's traveling to a city called Damascus. And it so revolutionizes and so transforms his life, he gives up on all that religious stuff, all that religious accomplishment, that whole religious track of justifying himself. He gives it all up because he has a new treasure. Jesus. And he describes that in Philippians chapter 3. Pick it up with me in verse 7. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, all that religious gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing in life compares. To knowing Jesus, my Lord, Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on. Tenacious. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting all that lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice these uh, three things that he talks about in there. He says, I count all my personal gains as loss. All that you can accomplish All that you can achieve, all the accolades and the awards, every act that brings affirmation of people in your direction. He said, that's really nothing compared to 
the privilege, the joy, the treasure of knowing, not knowing about, but knowing Christ. He says, I long to know the power of his resurrection. All that he purposes to do in me by giving me power, like the power that raised him from the dead, I want to live in that power. I want to live in that purpose. I want to live as that kind of ambassadorial, transitional kind of figure in this world. Even though it involves some sufferings, some pouring out of my life. I want that. And he says, apparently I'm hung up, guys. Advance it for me. Can you help me out there, Ben? One more back. Thank you. That's now back. <laughs> Forward now. Oh, okay. I press on toward the goal of the upward call. There's the tenacity. I press on. I press on. I move. I, I, I continue to give my heart in a full engagement to make that happen. Okay. Where have we been? As we've been talking about being the people of God... It's involved these three things. One, as you're uh, going to live in this world, you've got to destroy the idols. You've got to understand what's the competition. What's the thing that tries to seize your heart? And the key uh, skill that you've got to develop at that point is identification. Identifying what are the idols. Identifying with God. And then secondly, we saw that as they came in and conquered Canaan, we have to conquer worldliness. That's creeping into our heart, changing our thinking, changing our affections, and so on like that, uh, establishing a way of living in this world that is faithful unto Him. And the key develop, uh, skill to be developed at that point is courage. Identification. What's the competition? Courage. Withstand the cultural currents all around me. And then finally, to faithfully follow God and live a holy life, separated to Him. And that skill development is tenacity. How can I be a passionate, on fire, stirred individual about God and the things of God? So that brings me to where I began with you. Will you consider the evidence and choose to believe? You got a lot of, I got a lot of questions. I mean, I don't even know if I believe the Bible. I don't even know if uh, everything that uh, is a part of these ancient stories is something of value. I don't even know about the whole thing around Jesus and resurrection. So find out. There's a lot of evidence. We give away books here all the time. If you're our guest, we hope you'll take the case for faith with you today. Consider evidence. And will you... Consider the evidence, believe, give your heart to that, and practice faithfulness to it. You're not going to do that with perfection. That's why we call it practice. So that you get better and better and better at being a Jesus person. And will you be tenacious for personal holiness? Let me pray for you. So, Father, it's just been a remarkable few moments of you pursuing our hearts and interfacing with our lives and uh, 
communicating with our thoughts. And I just want to pray for every friend listening. That by the power of your spirit, these things would begin to make sense. Jigsaw puzzle pieces would begin to fall in place. A picture of who you are and what you're doing would begin to be seen. And I pray for hearts to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.